welcome to episode 36 of the Talent Oddly podcast. Our topic today, how to get traction for your projects. As always, hosted by me, Jared Brown, and I'm joined by Brandon Corbin. Hello. And our special guest on this episode is James Payton. Hey, James. Hey, everybody. How you hey, doing? Hey, James. Hey, how you I'm doing? doing? Fantastic. All right. Well, before we jump into things, I want to make a quick mention about the Talent Oply job board. Uh, it is live now, and we have lots of great jobs. Well, actually, a few great jobs on there, but more coming. And uh, we've got everything from UX design jobs to iOS development jobs, some Java, some .NET. So if any of that sounds appealing to you, check it out. And we will have freelance projects being listed on there soon enough. So look forward to that. But uh, before we do our beverage introductions, Brandon has a quick announcement to make. Wait, you're making me make the announcement? It is your announcement. You are the one that put the announcement into our show notes. So what I will an- let you make the announcement. What announcement? I'm not even sure what we're talking about We're talking now. about cleaning up the language. Oh, I'm not going to announce it. I didn't put that in the show notes. You put that in the show notes. I thought you put that in there. Anyway. Oh, you know, yeah. you know what? So here's here's what happened, friends, is that that we decide or Jared decides, you know, let's see what happens if we put this on the web design subreddit. Um, and, oh, no, no, no. But we actually had gotten some comments even before that. Oh, whatever. Okay, so here's here's what I'm asking you people. So I'm not going to swear at all this episode. Sure. I'm not going to say a single foul word. <laughs> and for everybody out there who didn't mind it or actually maybe enjoyed it because it kind of broke up the monotony <laughs> of all of the normal cludge that comes out of this podcast, <laughs> say something, speak up, give me uh, give me a prop, give me something. And so then I can rightfully say that our gentleman friend on Reddit, Arctic Blue, uh, who had the problem <laughs> with it to begin with because he wanted to listen to it with his children. Um, uh, so I can, he, I can as properly- As he drove them sign. around trying to get them to go to sleep. Yeah, which, you know, at some <laughs> which point- Which this podcast may help with that if he can play it without the curse words. It may put them right to sleep. Wake up! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, Arctic yeah. Blue. Yeah. Uh, they're like did, five, they're, I think they're sub- like three and four, he said, right? I don't know if you still right. drive around kids that young, old. <laughs> you did have a few supporters in the Reddit channel, by the way. Yeah, those are probably all my accounts, by the way. <laughs> probably. Upvote, upvote. So, yeah, that, that's what we're going to try to do, you know, and we'll see. We'll see if we can make it all the way through, right, Brandon? Oh, I will. Golly right. darn it. I'll hold you to it. All right, let's talk about what we're drinking, and then we can jump into the topic. And, as always, start with you, Brandon. I'm having the cellar eight, cellar number eight wine. I had a found great wine that my wife will actually drink. And that's good because I like her when she's drunk and she never drinks. So, uh, but that's not the wine I'm drinking right now. It's a cellar number eight Merlot and it's that one I like and it works. So if you want to get into a red wine, get it. It's good. How many glasses does it take for her to get drunk? Oh, um, What's the number? one is where like, I know I can start making the moves and it's not going to get rejected. <laughs> Two is like, I pretty much, it's game on. That's uh, so. It's not like how drunk she is. It's just how far can I get with her that's, that's sexually? An awesome, that's an awesome scale. <laughs> cool. All right, James. What are you drinking during this podcast? I am just drinking water during the podcast. I'm Sweet. Keeping way down. I uh, took a quick stop at my favorite bar, the uh, Libertine, uh, before the podcast in downtown Indianapolis. So I stocked up on a couple Sazeracs, which are my my favorite cocktails down there. 
And that, so the Libertine is kind of like a mixology bar, right? Yeah, yeah. It's styled like the, the 20s, 30s kind of fashion. The the mixologists wear these fancy little vests and hats and stuff like that. So the drinks are just amazing, though. Very, very nice. Cool. And do when you go in there, do they ask you about what types of flavors or drinks you like and, and then mix you up something to fit that taste? or They, they definitely will. Um, you know, I've fortunately been fortunate to go to the you know there enough times i've sort of become a regular and so they know to just give me the sazerac when i walk in which which is really nice nice but you know when, I, when i'm feeling adventurous i can definitely you know give them some of my favorite drinks and tell them what i'm feeling and occasionally they'll let me try things that are you know not on the menu yet and experience some of the drinks they're working on they invent a lot of their own drinks as well and a lot of their own combinations and mixes so it's really a great place excellent uh, I am uh, drinking the very classy Mike's Margarita from Sam's Club. You're such a woman. It's not too bad, actually. You know, it's, it's, as, as I sit here drinking my red wine. Right. <laughs> it's like a step above, probably like a BJ's wine cooler or something. But it actually tastes kind of like a margarita, so it 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 works. It now, passes the weekend, sniff test. This weekend, I was on a houseboat in Tennessee and was introduced to whiskey lemonade. Ooh. which is one of my new favorite drinks. That is an amazing concoction. You get some nice whiskey, mix it in with some good lemonade. Um, that, that'll, that'll punch you fast. That's good stuff there. That sounds good. You're quite the whiskey connoisseur, right? I, I connoisseur is a strong word, but uh, I'm definitely trying to, trying to reach that level. Yeah, see, I respected that. We were, we, were, we were at some Verge event, and did you buy me one? You you bought me a whiskey. I, think I did. I think yeah. I bought you Woodford. So. Yeah, and it was uh, it was awful, and I had to take it slow. And but then again, so was wine. Wine tastes like shit. Oh, mm, fifty cent jar. Sorry, there it goes. Man, you didn't even make it ten minutes. <laughs> it's not gonna happen, man. It's so not There's gonna no happen. Way. <laughs> oh, sorry, Reddit. All right, restart the timer. <laughs> See if you can beat your record now. Jeez. All right. Wait. Wait, um, uh, is Jesus Christ a bad word? Uh, yes. Yeah, I'd probably, if you're going to really try to like go totally clean, probably not on the list of allowed words well, or what, phrases. What if I use it in a religious that, tone? That would be weird for this podcast, but probably okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about how we can get traction for our projects. What I, I'm excited to talk to you guys about this because I'm always hearing about the things you guys are doing. And it sounds like you're getting actual visitors to come to your project, which congrats. That's a lot better than most developers are doing. And I fall into that, that category of developer that gets really excited about building something. You know, like you could not possibly tell me that this thing is not going to be awesome and people are not going to, you know, people are going to come to this thing in droves. <laughs> I build it, I put it out there, and I just, I don't know what to do next, and I just wait for people to discover it, and for it to start spreading, the word of mouth marketing, and that doesn't, of course, ever just happen. So I don't know how to get traction for my projects. That's what I want to find out from you guys. <laughs> so... This is going to be a dirty podcast, I have a feeling. <laughs> like like developers, when they're done listening to this, at least with the things that I might be saying, are going to feel a little dirty. Right. But yeah, that, we should probably preface this by saying that Brandon and I both enjoy you know, some of the darker aspects of, of internet marketing, some of the more automated tools and tactics that don't always work at scale. 
um, that don't always sound good in terms of PR, but in terms of being effective for a small project and then honestly being a lot of fun, um, they're an interesting attack sometimes. Yeah. Well, let's jump right into it. Uh, let's talk about one of the whatever that you think the best example is to start with, James. Let's talk about that project and just give us a short little history of what the what it is, what the project is. Yeah, so probably a lot of my examples uh, for this podcast will come from a, a startup I launched, um, started working on about two years ago. It's called Emailium, and it is a large database of email marketing campaigns. I basically subscribe to every email marketing campaign I can find, uh, store those messages up in the cloud, and allow email marketers to filter, search, sort through this database for, uh, you know, creative inspiration or competitive intelligence or any combination of the above. Um, most email marketers create these kind of repositories within Gmail on their own, and I wanted to create a larger, more powerful, flexible repository for these emails. So I started about a couple years ago. It went publicly live uh, a little over a year ago. Um, so that's probably the project I'll, I'll speak of okay. most during this podcast. I've also done a number of e-commerce websites and SEO projects, as well as worked on larger startups and a number of things in the e-commerce industry. So, now, so wait for the for the props record because he won't he won't give it to himself. That's uh, emailium.com. E m a i l i. What is it? I u m i u m yeah u m. Okay, so let's start with with day one there. You said you launched it about a year ago, right? So walk me through what your launch day is like. What do you do? Oh, I guess maybe even before that, what do you do in preparation for the launch day? And then let's talk about what your launch day is like. Yeah, so I did a lot of things in preparation for the actual launch day. And honestly, I wish I had done a lot more. A lot of what I'll probably talk about during this podcast is you know, the mistakes I made running up to the launch and I think some of the assumptions I made that turned out not to be true. Um, you know, Hopefully, I did some right things, but you know, definitely looking back, I wish I'd done some things differently. But some of the things I did, I think, correctly prior to launch was I spent some time uh, talking to email marketing influencers within the industry, thought leaders, people who wrote blogs, who worked at large companies, people who you know, I was able to that had some influence, speakers at conferences, things like that. I reached out to a lot of those people just on a one-on-one -on -one level to discuss the idea, to not so much pitch them from a sales perspective, but get their feedback on, you know, would the kind of service be useful? Um, and a lot of them said it would. And that led to a lot of traction as they shared it with their friends. Um, it led to a bit of industry buzz. The email marketing industry, just because of the size of the industry, when you talk to, when you're just thinking about email marketing professionals, people who do this full-time, day in, day out, it's a, it's a relatively small industry. And you know that that definitely enabled me to sort of target those people at a, at a much easier level than than hitting up a bigger market. So that was definitely one of the things I did. I went to several conferences, sat down, talked to people in person, um, did some networking, and then my other big strategy was was social media. I use again because of the size of the industry, I was able to use. Twitter and LinkedIn to really sort of target a, a large number of email marketing professionals. And then I connected with them on LinkedIn and connect with them on Twitter and just try to make them aware of the overall emailium vision, you know, what the project was going to be roughly. Even prior to launch, I basically put up a, a landing page that allowed them to sign up uh, 
prior to launching and get notified when the site launched. Okay, so all so of this that you're mentioning, this is all prior to prior launch. Prior to launch, launch yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when you go to these, so these conferences, were you paying to fly somewhere and like paying for the conference and hotel rooms and all that? I was, you know, I definitely was. It was, it was not cheap either. You know, I probably spent five to 10 grand just attending conferences and, and doing some rough marketing just prior to the launch of the website. So but let me, also, let me ask, go ahead, James, James, let me interrupt the, the, what's interesting is so with emailium that was, was that your, your biggest, like kind of personal investment that you've made financially, uh, to a product that you've launched, like compared to Zimian or, or the others? I think upfront investment, it was definitely, you know, I definitely put a, a, a pretty large sum of personal money into it. Yeah. Um, you know, I've invested more of the years in other projects, but in terms of just investing like prior pre-launch to launch, launch kind of thing, pre-launch, pre-revenue, that was definitely my largest investment. I also had a couple of small angel investors that invest in the project as well. Okay. Uh, but it was definitely and, sort of a larger financial stake than, than I'd normally been doing. Would you do it again the same way? Compared to like how you, I mean, it's hard to do obviously because you know when you launched a product before that, it, you know times were different. But would you would you do it the same way where you'd put that kind of investment, or would you consider going back to where you just kind of build it and you release it and do you know some of the the black magic that we'll talk about? Um, you know, I guess let me answer that by talking about a couple of the major mistakes I feel like I made with the Emilian project. Uh, the first is that I, you know around on it too much in terms of a developer. I'd add a feature here, I'd add a feature there. I'd be like, this sounds cool. This is an interesting challenge. You know, I do what I wanted to do as a developer rather than what my customers theoretically really needed or wanted. Um, you know, I really lost focus in many ways for, for about a time period of six months where, you know, I didn't launch because I didn't want to launch it, not because it was ready, not because I had reached the minimal viable product set. Um, but mainly because, you know, I wanted to add this or do that or had this thing. And looking back now, all those things that I added, uh, according to analytics, get almost no use. They're not core to the product. They're not really solving a problem. They were just neat little things I wanted to add, like social media integration or a color search or things along those lines. Yeah. Um, and the, go ahead. And the second major mistake was and similar was, um, you know, I really did not – I failed to nail down – that people would pay for the service. You know, I, I I ran a free open beta for for about six months before putting up the paywall. Uh, I ran surveys. I talked to people, and everyone said they'd pay. And you know, I had some revenue estimates that looked really good. But the reality is, when I actually tried to charge, uh, by and large, most people did not pay. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't find the service worth paying for. Yeah. Um, and I should have just. I should have figured that out a lot sooner. You know, I should have asked. But, how, you know, how do you do that, right? How do you figure it out sooner when, when you did, like, what makes sense is you talk to him and you say, okay, which, you know, is, I guess, as you probably find at, in enterprise sales, the same thing. Oh, yeah, we would totally pay for that. Then when it's time, <laughs> time to come to give us the money, they're like, eh. But, you know, is there a way that you can really test that without just starting right off the bat charging? Um, I, I, think, I think it's difficult. And the answer would be this, and honestly, what I wish I would have done differently um, is I wish I'd started right off the bat charging. Yeah. I wish I wish I had built the core feature set and said it does X, Y, Z, pay for it. And let's say yes or no. And if they say no, then maybe I ask, you know, what is it that you will pay for? What is missing? Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the kind of questions that because I wasn't asking for money, I did not get good clarity into 
uh, I didn't get an answer. I didn't really have the data I needed to make the business profitable. Sure. Um, the main problem with the service long term is that everyone, all email marketing professionals already do this core thing. Uh, with their own email accounts. They all have Gmail accounts, which they subscribe to their favorite email marketing campaigns. I had a lot more email marketing campaigns. I had a lot better filtering and searching than they did within the Gmail interface. But at the end of the day, it wasn't worth $50 a month or mm -hmm. however much I was charging to switch from Gmail, you know, what they were used to, to my paid service. The, the value wasn't there in their mind. And that was the difference. If I, if I asked them, is this useful? They said yes. If I asked them, will I pay for it? They said yes. What I failed to truly understand was, you know, would you really pay for it and give up what you're already doing? Because most of them were already doing a similar thing. Um, and it was the switching cost that wasn't worth it for them mm -hmm. or the difference in terms of, you know, what they got out of it. The value was not there. Do you have in in the database right now, do you have, I, I still think the whole, like, do you have a bunch of deals that other people wouldn't have access to because they're not available on the website? There's definitely some, you know, you know, I've definitely considered to talk to some investors and partners about, you know, opening it up for a consumer facing deal site. And that may still happen. Mm -hmm. the, the difficulty is, you know, parsing that out in a reliable you know, algorithm, being able to check sure. that this is a 20% offer, 20% offer is better than the 10% offer currently visible on the website. Um, I think the reality of most modern sophisticated email marketing campaigns is that they're not offering sales substantially better than you can find on their website. Yeah. You know, the kinds of emails of which offer the substantial discounts or the more private ones where you're, you know, they're targeting you because of your history. They're targeting you because they're in their frequent buyer club or you're a member of their credit card or something like that. And I don't typically speaking have access to those emails mm -hmm. because I've only signed up for their, their public email campaigns. Yeah. So, you know, this is, a, this is a big assumption on, on my part and I could be wrong. Um, but to, Data I've decided the technical investment to completely flip the business model probably isn't worth it. Yeah. And I could certainly be wrong and haven't, haven't completely given up investigating the idea. Well, I, I got one more question, then I'll stop. Um, no, I don't. I'll, I'll actually, no, I'm not going to even ask it. We'll <laughs> talk about that offline. All right. Well, let's, let's get back real quick to your original question there, Brandon, which was, was the ROI there for you? You know, once you paid five to ten grand to do these conferences, did you see the return on investment for that? Would you do that again for a new project? You know, you know, I think I would. You know, I think my mistake was not in the launch strategy, but in the overall value props given. And if I had done a better job of asking questions and done a better job of, of in retrospect, sticking with the lean startup principles, um, which I'm a huge fan of, if I had done a deeper level of customer discovery, I think those conferences would have been a perfect place to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm attending a conference with 500 email marketing professionals. I'm attending the, you know, I attended probably the three top email marketing conferences uh, in the world uh, within a roughly four to five month period. And, you know, there's not a better opportunity to build buzz, to to develop my customer profile, to figure out what are my value props. And I think I just slightly misused that opportunity. You know, I certainly got some good traction. I made some great connections. And, you know, all in all, I considered them a success in terms of the, the traction building campaign. Um, and, you know, and to this day, there are people I can reach out to, I can talk to, I can connect with, I can ask for favors with, those kinds of things um, that I definitely, you know, 
I'd probably do it again uh, in terms of strategy. You know, I think my failures were just the business model itself, the service itself didn't make sense, and I failed to validate that properly. But in terms of a launch strategy, you know, I thought it worked well with the service I had with the small industry I was targeting. Dude, so, I, uh, I know, I, I, but see, I, I, what, I, what I love about emailing is not necessarily the business model, the business plan, or how you want to execute it, but all of the data that you're collecting. I mean, you, yeah. there's just so much data there. Like, you, I, I'm sure, did you, you know, the e-commerce usability report, did you ever buy that? And it was like 34 bucks and these guys went through and did, I mean, you have all of this data that I, I would assume that if you could like really have it analyzed would be insanely valuable to any marketer. Cause again, every marketer now is, has to look at email, right? If they're calling themselves a marketer, they have to be an email. They have to be in every channel that, oh, the data you have is just awesome. You know, I, I certainly agree. You know, I don't think by any means I've maximized the value of the data. Um, you know, part of my personal, uh, a lot of this has to do with just some various aspects of my personal life as I took a, a full-time role about a year and a half ago, um, just prior to the, the paywall launch of Emilium. And it definitely decreased the amount of personal focus I was able to devote to the project. Sure. Um, and that's really, I think, hurt some of my abilities to transition the business model and remain flexible. Yeah. Um, I just have a lot less time than I would like to devote to the project. And but, you, but you're killing it at Compendiums. So you're killing I, it I'm there. Sure, I certainly hope we're killing it there. Yeah. All right, so so you attend these conferences, and uh, <laughs> Jared, yeah. we're trying to reel it back in. Let, let's get some good tips and tricks here. So you attend these conferences, and you're getting what email addresses of these people, contact information, and then you plan on notifying them when it's, the it's site launches. It's relationship. It's just building the relationship. Right. So then, and, he, and and James, you did do a killer job at that. I mean, you know, when when he launched, you know, people were writing about it, and and you kept seeing it on Twitter. So it's just getting everybody to talk about it, right? So you can get that initial blast of traffic. Yeah, absolutely. The conference was mainly more relationship based than than, than list based. It wasn't it wasn't a marketing tactic as well as it was a relationship building tactic. You know, I wanted to meet people. I wanted to talk to people. Uh, a lot of these conferences I went in with sort of pre planned list of people I wanted to meet. I had a goal of you know I want to talk to these five or ten people. Okay. You know. Uh, you know, I had a, a hit list, for, for lack of a better word. I want to meet this person. And, you know, I found out what after event, after conference events or party that person was going to. I made sure I attended that event. And I, you know, styled up to them. It's the classic networking techniques of, okay, you know, what is my goal for being here? I'm not aimlessly wandering around meeting people. And I, I did a lot of that, too. I definitely did a lot of just randomly talking to people at lunch, shaking hands, starting up conversations. Um, but I definitely had some definite goals of people at specific companies and specific positions that I want to make sure they're aware of the product that we had a relationship and and it wasn't you know as the goal with any networking you know in the context of this conversation it sounds like a very sort of goal-driven selfish kind of concept but you know I definitely am much on the you know I want to help people wherever I can you know so anything I could do for them any way I could provide them data or help them with email or connect them with somebody else or refer them to somebody else it was definitely a let's make a win-win here you know I'm, I'm trying to make friends not so much purely <laughs> the sense of I'm trying to build a business so I just then, need some friends so you're using you use Twitter as well all right and walk me through I guess real quick what your strategy was there are you searching for email marketing people and and just kind of walk me through how you did that 
Yeah, so, so there's definitely a few different use cases of Twitter. Um, and also the one that was most successful for me was the more automated form. I used a, a uh, Twitter application called Tweet Adder. Woohoo! Um, that was knocked that one I, off my list. Yeah, I know Brandon was excited about that. <laughs> so essentially what I did was I'd search for anybody with email marketing um, in, their, in their description, and I would automatically add them on Twitter. And what happened at that time is they'd receive an email from Twitter that said, Emailium is following you. Um, now, Emailium is sort of an interesting word. It's like, what does it mean? What is this thing? What I've heard of it. It's obviously related to email. And, you know, I'm obviously following someone who's in the email marketing industry. So I got a very high open rate on people who are like, what is this Emailium thing? Um, and so it generated a lot of natural clicks, a lot of natural traffic. My, By far, my biggest traffic source from, you know, pre-launch was emails. And emails from Twitter saying email is following you. So I had this automated campaign that would just follow people who were in the email marketing industry. Um, and again, Tweet Adder made that very simple, made it very effective. Um, I ran other automated tweets, Twitter searches where I'd look for people discussing email marketing. I'd interact with them. You know, all my interactions with actual people and tweets were very, you know, very real, very relevant, very non-automated. But the automated following campaign, I think, was hugely successful in just sort of building general awareness of Emilium prior to launch. And, people don't people don't realize the the tweet adder like and and I don't again I don't know how long it's going to last like it, you know because Twitter is making all these changes and all that but tweet adder is a phenomenal tool uh, to be able to build up your initial list right and just to get a following and then be able to start tweeting about your own product I mean it is killer for that. And it co- and it costs money, so but it's not much. I mean, I think you can get one that has like you can have one to three accounts for like thirty bucks or something like that. Very cool. And you can have unlimited for ninety nine, something like that. Okay. What other what other tactics did you do before launch? You know, I did similar things on LinkedIn, um, where I'd you know look for email marketing professionals, and then I'd try to connect with them or look at their companies and you know try and just do some quick Googling and reach out at a personal level and say, hi, I'm doing this thing. Are you interested in checking out the beta? Uh, things like that. And that was a bit more of a personal touch, a lot less automated. But again, just trying to reach people who are influential or a target audience and get them engaged even prior to launch. Get a little bit of buzz. Um, there were definitely times where I'd email one person at a company and that person had already heard from it. Uh, from another person in their company, there was definitely you know a lot of buzz prior to launch. It was an interesting service. Um, I was dramatically undercutting the price of some existing people in the space, um, and this isn't certainly true in every case. But there were a lot of cases where somebody had informed their entire department, they had brought it up at a meeting. Um, there were things like that where you know word of mouth was spreading, and, and I think that's a huge part of of anything where you're, where you're really looking to build traction, it ultimately comes product. Is this, is this useful? Is it cool? Is it innovative? Is it something worth talking about? Similar to Seth Godin's Purple Cow. If it's not worth talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're going to have problems building, <laughs> you're going to have problems building traction anyway and creating word of mouth. And in my case, I think emailing was actually really cool. I think it was really neat. I think it was really worth talking about. Ultimately it came down to not being worth paying for. Um, but I did get a lot of success, success getting people to talk about it. Okay, so then take me through launch day. What what is, what do you do to really ensure a good launch to help get traction? 
you know, launch day for me was almost anticlimactic. Like I'd spent a lot of work prior to launch building that list. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I knew it wasn't a big enough launch, at least and this is my assumption, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not going to get picked up on TechCrunch. I'm not going to pick up on Reddit. You know, it wasn't that kind of story in my opinion. So it was very much about building my list prior to launch and then flipping on the switch, um, emailing people, then tweeting about it. And that was pretty much my launch strategy. I was actually working full time at Compendium at that point. Um, you know, so you I were? came in a little. I was. When, I when didn't I realize on the that. Paywall. I didn't. Yeah. Oh. oh, for the paywall. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's sort of two launches in any million. One is, you know, public beta, come here and check it out. Um, and the second one is I'm actually charging, come pay me now. Now, did you do uh, an email so blast was, for each of those launches? I did. I did. And how many people, if I can ask, how many people did you have in each of those blasts? Um, I'd prefer not to disclose those numbers publicly. You know, it was over several thousand and, you know, oh, wow. under 25,000. So, you know, we'll put it that way. So thousands, um, though, for your initial launch were in the email list. Yes. yes. That's I think there awesome. were thousands. You know, I, I think there were thousands in the initial public beta. And, and one of the reasons that I did a public beta was to, you know, continue building that word of mouth, to continue saying, okay, this is cool, this is worth te- checking out. It's a lot easier for word of mouth to spread when they can see it and mm-hmm. they can feel it and touch it and say, here, check it out, than it is, oh, is neat. Here's a, you know, here's a description of it. Now pay 25 bucks to actually see it. So one of the reasons I did keep it in public beta longer than I think I should have um, was that it did help with traction. It did help with marketing. You know, it was very beneficial in that, that sense. I just think it was unbeneficial in helping me iterate to, a, to a, a good business model quickly. Of those thousand that were in the mailing list, were they all authentic? You know, there was definitely um, – in the initial list, there was a good mix of local people, of friends who had tweeted about it, things like okay. that. People who are maybe local to Indianapolis. But it wasn't, it wasn't like a bought list or anything. No. you know, There oh. was absolutely no buying of lists. So there was everybody that's no listening to this, thing. don't do that. Yeah, don't do that thing. It's, especially if you're selling to email marketing professionals, don't do that thing. <laughs> uh, but but you know, I don't think that's a tactic that, that ever works. Um, but it's so it's easy. Not, it's like you search, you search the web and you're going to find, yeah, you can buy any email list for this much money. Don't do it. Just avoid that at all costs. Yeah, yeah why does yeah, that no. not work? I mean, not that I would really want to do that, but why because does it not work? Because the majority of them aren't valid. The emails are old as hell. Um, they're never targeted like they say they're going to be targeted. And and it's kind of – it's on a – Ethical, in my opinion, um, but I've never had any good success on buying email lists. So you have done it, yeah. Oh yeah, for my uh, for the recruitment agency that uh, that I ran in '06. I mean, that was a big piece of it. We did direct mail, so we bought physical addresses and we bought uh, email. And the conversion rate was just so low that it's just not yeah. worth it at all. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so what yeah, what are some other things that do in work? A, in horrible trouble with if you're sending emails from lists, you will get. You'll get in spam traps. Uh, mm. Most of those lists are seeded with spam traps by the mm. spam prevention companies, and they're basically fake emails. They specifically seeded uh, in these lists, and so they know that you bought a list, and then they will just flag your. Oh, spam. that's awesome, dude! They do that. Yeah. They do that with. Um, they do that with mail. Uh, yeah, traditional addresses too. They have seed addresses in there. So that's funny. I never realized that they actually translated that to to the online world too. That's genius. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it is. <laughs> They, they do a lot of that. So you're pretty much guaranteeing to get your server banned and your email service, your email account turned off if you if you try to send from lists. Nasty. 
All right, so well, that's something that doesn't work. What's another thing that does work well? Like now that you're past launch with emailing, what 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 else did you do now? That, okay, it sounds like you got off to a great start. You had thousands of people that you were able to notify just to start the beta off with. Word of mouth is spreading, but what do you do to keep your foot on the gas? You know, I, I think I sort of took my foot off the gas in terms of helium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know that to be completely honest, I really executed that part of it well. It, you know, I was, I was working full time uh, in another project, got sort of distracted. I don't, you know, I don't know that I did a good job of that. Um, in other projects, you know, there's you know, traditional advertising works great. SEO is a, is a huge, I'm a huge fan of that tactic overall. Um, PPC is always effective. If, if it's effective, it's effective. If it's not effective, it's not. But if you can get it to work, it's, I mean, it's fantastic. Um, you know, email marketing is a great strategy. Once you have your initial list built, you continue to email people to re-engage. Uh, PR, general word of mouth, you know, always works great. Guest blog posts, um, anything that, you know, basically gets your name in front of people. Uh, I think guest blog posts is still a widely underused tactic. Mm. Um, and that doesn't have to be just just a blog, but it could be a you know, writing for a magazine, online, offline magazine. There's a lot of, you know, content production is really hard these days for corporations to publishers. So it's very easy for you to sort of plant your story and, and get your word out by telling a story or you know, giving a testimonial or speaking on a podcast like this. There are many of those kinds of opportunities to spread the word about your company, you know, both prior and post launch. All right. I want to hear some of these uh, darker tactics. You you want to jump into some of this stuff, Brandon? Maybe talk about a specific project where you've used like Mechanical well, Turk or other tools? Yeah, yeah. So so uh, I, I kind of just wrote out a list before we started the show. And, and some of, I know a lot of it um, will be uh, repeat for what uh, James would say. Um, but so a lot of times you come up with this like, brilliant idea, but it's it's the mark it needs the market and it needs the people, right? Where you have the chicken to the egg problem. And so, you know, one of my ideas required content to be constantly being added to, you know, to the website. Um, and and Mechanical Turk by Amazon is an amazing way of doing this, where you can basically go and uh, so Turk, uh, it's basically a, a human intelligence task. Is that what they call it? Yeah, I think so. Um so it's basically any task that that you know someone with a, a brain could do, and and you don't need much more than that, right? And and I'll pay you ten cents to do it. I'll pay you five cents to do it. Uh, so I've used Mechanical Turk for all sorts of. One of them was tell me your deep dark secrets, right? And I'll pay you five cents for it, and you select your your country and you select you know you type in whatever your secret is and if it's a if it's one that i you know find plausible i'll pay you for it um and it was a great way of just filling up you know this content driven site uh, all the time with fresh content so uh, i personally like mechanical turk and james i don't know if you have other uh, examples that you've used mechanical turk for that you want to talk about uh, I've used Mechanical Turk in a lot of ways. I think it's a it's a, a really useful, fascinating tool. I haven't used it on the marketing side much. I've almost always used it exclusively for the product side to build product, well, to gather data. But see, I think that's like that. the thing, right? Though, isn't it? I mean, it's it is the product in those types of products that we're building are really the marketing in its own right. Yeah, Does absolutely. Make- I mean, mechan- Mechanical Turk was a huge part of Emilium's data gathering of. Of taking Emilium from a you know 
a database search engine to a huge source of data. Uh, a lot of that was powered by Mechanical Turk, by people searching for you know, email marketing campaigns of people gathering data for me, categorizing emails, categorizing uh, companies, categorizing lists. A lot of that was powered by Mechanical Turk. Uh, as Brandon mentioned, in, in Mechanical Turk is just the perfect thing for anything that requires a human, uh, that requires a very short amount of time to complete. It could be a short bit of research. It could be categorization. It's great for things that computers are bad at, for example, is just a pornographic image. Uh, you know, humans can detect that in milliseconds. Um, computers have a very like hard time with that concept. Yeah, I know Brandon can. <laughs> so. Do they let you do? Can, could yeah. you do that task on there? They allow yes. that. Totally. And you yeah. have to you have to say that this is, you know, that this is mature content. So you do have to have a disclaimer. But yeah, you could just have it where it's, pull, you know, it pulls up, a you know, the latest image and you can, you know, is this spam? Is this whatever? And they can be like, yes or no. I mean, it's it's crazy all the stuff you can do with Turk. Yeah, and that's honestly where Mechanical Turk came from in the first place. It's a service of Amazon. They built it for internal usage uh, and then just scaled it out very similar to the rest of Amazon Web Services, the clouds or database services, things like that. It was originally designed to look for pornographic images, to read reviews, to make sure that this is a, a good review and not a, not a crappy review. Um, so that is originally where it came from, those kinds of services. All right. What else is on your list, Brandon? Uh, so Reddit and Hacker News, those are kind of two of my my newer ones. Um, especially if you're going to be launching a new app, go you know uh, find a subreddit that fits kind of closely to you know the market that you're going after, and and post it to Reddit. And I'm not saying do this, but you can do this. Create multiple accounts um, and uh, upvote your own shit stuff. I'm surprised. <laughs> fifty seconds. You made it, 50, Yeah, you made it more than ten minutes jar. that time. Uh, I'm surprised how little protection they have or enforcement on Reddit against that yeah. sort of thing. You know, Enjoy it now, friends. Yeah, I'm used to Dig where there is a lot of that. And even Hacker News, if yep. you don't warm up accounts on Hacker News, it will flag it. So if you do try that tactic where you create five brand new accounts and immediately go upvote that one story, it will take that story right out of the list. And well, and with Reddit, though, you have the penalty so box. much you have so much traffic that all all that little that initial burst is all it's going to do is just give you a little bit of leeway and then then the actual quality of the post itself is going to either get upvoted or downvoted to hell true um you know Although, so this is more just like a little uh. in some subreddit i would say that's more true for hacker news in my experience with some subreddits there's not so many upvotes going on that if you get four of your sure. friends to upvote something, something yeah. with five points on it can stick around in that subreddit on the first page for a day or two. Absolutely. That is true. But but those are all phenomenal. I mean, those two uh, are just uh, – just do it. you know. And, and if you're going to do it with Hacker News, do a sh uh, make your title have show HN colon and yes. then – because Absolutely. that's – you know that's where all the developers are going and saying, "Hey, this is what I want to show Hacker News, my new thing," and and it really is a great place to get actual feedback and ideas and a good way of driving traffic. So those two are are kind of definitely high up on my list. It's amazing how much traffic you can drive between them. Like the mm -hmm. times that I've been able to rank highly in either a good subreddit or Hacker News, it's just ridiculous. Like thousands of visits in two hours. Absolutely. All right, I love that one. What else do you have for us? Uh, a Craigslist and. Ooh. 
Craigslist is an awesome one. You know, so I use Craigslist to test ideas. Um, so I'll have an idea and instead of now like building it, like I've, we've talked before, um, and, and James knows this where I'm like, you know, I'll build some for six months and then I actually go to market and test and it fucking, fl- or oops, sorry. <laughs> Very hard blue. Um, it, it completely flops. And so now what I do is I just kind of come up with my rough idea. I throw the thing out on Craigslist in Indianapolis, or then I hit other markets if I don't get the feedback I'm looking for, um, and test out how much people I can drive to a landing page. Wait, um, you got to back up here for a minute because I'm not on Craigslist that often. I've been there maybe four times ever. Yeah. What exactly are you posting on Craigslist and where on their site are you posting this? All right. So this newsletter I was trying to build up, I wanted to build up a Mac newsletter. I've now realized that's stupid. I should go iPhone, but whatever. <laughs> um, uh, so I just went in and I would go post in the computer section of Craigslist. <laughs> really? Which is meant for what normally? Like selling computers? Yeah. And I'm like, are you new to the Mac? Click here, right? And I and and I'll send you a weekly thing that tells you all the you know tricks and tips uh-huh. and that. I drive them to a web page and they sign up and then I know okay, there's a market for that. And I've only spent three or four hours on the uh, initial landing page, right? Because I've got that whole process down. Um, and then I you know I try it in Dayton, I try it in you know L.A., I try it here, I try it there. So I use Craigslist a lot now, um, and it's and it's it's a weird you know because again you've got that Craigslist like subculture people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it is a totally different market than what a Reddit or a Craigslist is because those people actually know how to use computers um, and and spell. Um, but but it, it, it does kind of give you a feel of what the masses might actually take to your idea. So Craigslist is, is one that's on there as and well. And what are we talking as far as visitors? Hundreds a day? Thousands? Dozens? You know, Right now, it would literally be dozens if you're going after, you know, because you have to start in a specific market. Um, What I do is I hit one market, and if I can get 12 people going to this landing page a day, I consider that a success because then I go and I can test in another market, and the same thing is happening. So I know at least there's some interest in it, right? Instead of me spending all my time building this stupid list building thing, which people use still, by the way, James, um, (laughs) that – uh, that at least I didn't spend six months building it. Okay. Well, and you mentioned landing page, and I am curious about that. I think it has something to do with our topic here, getting traction, because you you want to convert these people before you've launched on your landing page to signing up with their email, right, so that you can blast them when you go and launch. What, Like you said, you've done this landing page a bunch of times, and you've got it down to you know three to four hours now. What are some of the things that you do in a landing page that makes it effective? Uh, a video. Okay. Do, video. do you start the video automatically or do they have to hit play? Um, you know, I haven't I, – I don't I do not do it automatically. But time job, automatically. just personally hate it. Right. Uh, but it, Brandon is not that evil. <laughs> like there is something – because I go to that website because I'm working on it and I have to refresh, refresh, refresh. And if I have to hit stop every single time, it just drives me crazy. Yeah, totally. But yeah, so – So I actually – Go ahead. Go ahead, Brandon. I was going to say, I have a slightly different tactic uh, that I've used with some of my my e-commerce projects where I will be testing out a variety of different products to sell, uh, different price points, things like that. Um, I don't actually want to take the time to make a landing page, at least a landing page that's specific enough to, to, you know, credible enough from an e-commerce perspective. Um, You know, I don't want them to fill an email. So so I actually have a multi-step process I take for e-commerce. I typically buy pay-per-click ads. And then I will actually point them to a competitor's website. What? Wait, wait, there's wait. No, yes. There's no, no requirement AdWords. within you know, Google AdWords that you actually own the website you're advertising. Um, 
And so I'll fool around with keywords, with prices. You know, if it's a little off, AdWords doesn't normally mind. Um, it allows me to get some data on what kind of click-through rate am I getting on this? Would, you know, at a very relative rate, you know, what kind of interest and traction is there in this product when it's yes. pitched this way? And so I'll actually buy it on a, uh, as I said, a competitor's website. And the next step is I will actually build my own landing page. Maybe I've filtered out that this product doesn't work or this sales tactic won't work. Um, and so I'll actually build out, you know, a fake landing page for my e-commerce product. And then when you click the buy now button, it literally says we're out of stock, you know, check I've back heard, next yeah. week. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. You know, the whole thing's completely fake. There's no site. And yep. then the third final step is I will actually build out the actual e-commerce website, put in, um, you know, credit card tracking, those kinds of things, and, and then actually try that. So it's sort of a, a multi-step process and <laughs> filter out what I want to do. But it all starts by, you know, advertising my competitor or an alternative instead. Very cool. I like that. And so, that's awesome. That is so killer. I never even thought about doing that. Where Because, you, again, you have to send them somewhere. Right. How, right. I'm curious. How, you're, you're testing the copy and the value props. Yeah. How how much money are you are you spending when you do an experiment like that? Uh, it, it all depends. You know, my goals for you know these e-commerce projects at the time was to generate per product three to five thousand dollars in revenue a month. Um, so at that point, it was certainly worth it for me to spend two hundred fifty dollars in PPC ads to find the right product and do some early research. Again, uh, especially in the e-commerce world, this this prevented me from actually having to build a build a landing page, prevented me from ordering product. I didn't have to mess with any of that. So it was very early stage, anywhere from like fifty three hundred dollars in terms of the money I'd spend testing up front. Okay, so. Uh- Going back to you for a minute, Brandon, what what are some other keys to doing a successful landing page? Oh, God. Uh, you know, uh, really testing and tracking everything. And and that's one thing that James taught me. Um, and this was now years and years and years ago um, where he was really big into A-B testing or, or multivariant. Um, and he actually came to where I was working at the time and we were considering buying his services. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I didn't take it uh, when, when we first talked. I was like, yeah, but then I really started thinking about it and getting into it. And really testing is a huge piece. So I track everything. I track track every step that somebody goes through that landing page you know they land they fill out just partial of the form you know i'm i'm tracking everything that they're doing so i can see cuz you know realistically i don't know I don't know what what makes a good landing page, especially because each person, you know, each group of whatever, whether it's me trying to sell e-cigarette stuff, it might be completely different. So it's really monitoring, watching, and then adapting to what you find. Okay. What about using a a service like Launch Rock or something that gives you a one-page landing page really quickly? So, no. My question, actually, I've got it, is is does Launch Rock let you do video? Does anybody know? I. I don't know because I looked into using it, but you do have to pay for it. And so that's where I'm fine. I'm fine paying for it if they can do video. If they can do video, then it's worth it um, because then we don't have to worry about even setting up a web server 
right? We, they can handle all of that. But I really do think the key is having is having a video. And 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 I go, you know, Dropbox is kind of my go to when I try to explain it. Is what Dropbox did is they had they had a beautifully simple uh, uh, video that explained their service, and then right next to it, this the the sign up for you know getting notified when we're ready to launch. Uh, and and I didn't have to read a bunch of text. I got instantly what it was. So I think video is a huge piece that people can take advantage of. Now there's an, Anaboom, um, uh, which I and you all have to Google it. But basically, it's a crowdsourced video uh, marketplace where you can go and say, "Look, I'm looking to spend a couple hundred bucks. Here's what I want," and then people will bid on it. And uh, mm. you know, so that and they'll make is the video for you then. Exactly. Yeah. So you're not sitting there trying to figure out how to do it. You know, I go uh, Quipple, um, Max uh, Max Yoder, uh, Quipple here in Indianapolis that launched. He did a phenomenal job on their video. Uh, James, did you ever see that? I'm, I'm sure I did. Um, I'm trying to remember. Max actually done a, used to work uh, compendium yeah, for yeah. full time. He's done a lot of great videos for us. He just has a really good eye for that kind of thing. Yeah, he does, and it's just so simple, and it gets straight to the point. But I really do. So if 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 Rocket Boom or Rocket Launch does do that, um, I, I would say it's worth it. Otherwise, again, you just need a Mailchimp form or whatever email you know app you want to use. And uh, uh, exact target since they do post jobs on the job board. Um, <laughs> nice, I love it. Oh, that, like, uh, so here's a quick one: Launch Effect. Launch Effect is what I ended up using. It's a WordPress plugin. They have a free version and a premium version, and you can do video. I'm doing video on a landing page right now for something we're launch that I'm launching soon. And I really like Launch Effect. You don't have to pay anything for the fr- you know the free version. Obviously, is free. So unlike LaunchRock and all these others that try to offer you a bunch. Launch effect was so easy, and you just put it right into WordPress. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Spending. How much is Launch Rocket? You Launch Rock. I don't. Whatever it is. I, stupid. I didn't. I didn't remember. I'm sure it could be looked up quickly. Uh, and there, if you search like on Quora, what are all the the alternatives to Launch Rock? You'll find a bunch of other stuff. Like Kickoff Labs seemed to be the most feature rich, but again, was the most expensive. Then there's like My Beta List, Prefinery, Launch Daddy. There's tons of these things out there now. So, I mean, imagine a product that that's all you do. <laughs> I know that, but the like Launch Rock was a startup weekend project and it actually turned into a real company. And I think they, they're like, they're profitable. They're making money Jeez. and they just do launch sites. So you know that the customer is not going to be a long-term customer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. What are some other, what are some other, hit, hit me with some more dark tactics here. I like the mechanical Turk tactics a lot. What else do you have? James? I think those are the majority of, you know, my darker tactics, uh, just a lot of hustle, you know, put things wherever you can. Um, you know, some of the things I've done, and I think this is more standard practice than a dark tactic, but, you know, put together a list of the top blogs for the industry you're targeting, start commenting on everything they write, you know, relevant and comment. So just make sure your name is out there. Um, make sure you're interacting with the authors and getting good feedback those kinds of things um what about the extent of my, my darker tactics yes all right okay i've got one minute you tell me if my internet's coming through okay and i'll go on my diatribe if it is uh go for it we'll see it's not perfect but we'll it's not live with that. um so you create a twitter account for the market that you're going after okay you then go to every popular blog in that market to get their rss feed are we? Am I still with you? 
Yes. Okay, good. You take that RSS feed and you concatenate them all together using uh, Yahoo pipes and you merge them all into a single RSS feed. Then you use uh, twitterfeed.com and you take that feed and you automatically post it to your Twitter account. Yep. Then you either use Twitter uh, tweet adder to go and follow specific people that tweet about X or are like follow this company or do this and you have it automatically follow as many people as it can within a day and dump people that don't follow you back. That's awesome. Or I, you I'm do actually, it manually. I'm doing something very similar to that. I actually put a buffer app in between that though. So I'm using okay. yep. I'm using yep. Google Reader to compile all of like exactly what you said, all those RSS feeds together into one. And then I use if this, then that to do yep. the plumbing. And so whenever a new one, and they actually had a recipe in there that was perfect for this. Whenever, you know, take this RSS feed, any new posts, put them into buffer app so that I won't, what I did not want is have a whole bunch in one day. I want to kind of spread it out, make it look more natural. So I think buffer app works really well for that. Yeah, fuck the, oops, but forget the natural uh, as far as I'm concerned, right? I want this thing to go out every 30 minutes oh. and I want two of them to go out every 30 minutes. So it's predictable, it's expected and, and, and then just follow the hell out of as many people as humanly possible within that market. Well, you could use buffer app to make that 30 minute predictability too. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't need buffer app in the case that I'm doing it because I don't necessarily want it. And now maybe I, you know, I would have a better result because buffer is doing the an, you know analytics on what's the best time. Um, and it'll know if they click on it too. It'll give yeah. you. It'll integrate with Bitly or whatever and, and let you see that. And do it now. Do it now, like four months before you're even ready to launch, so you at least have a base to to be able to start communicating to and and all of that. So I've got I've got ones that are still running for products that I have yet to ever release, and I'll still make sure. And I'll, every once in a while, I'll go in there and I'll tweet some human stuff to make it seem like it's not you know just a total bot. Um, but my use my uh, use this use underscore this on Twitter. Check it out. There's I mean, and that's all that's all automatically fed. There's ten thousand plus followers on it, and I use. I mean, it always is a phenomenal tool to automatically drive traffic to my job board. I saw a I saw a post once, a study that somebody had done that the number of followers you get per day is directly linked to the number of uh, posts that you do per day. That that like number directly is me. Yeah, and they, so what, the way they did the study is that they sh- they created an account that posted once a day. They created one that posted every hour, one that posted every minute, one every second. And the one that posted every single second had the most followers. You know, with that case, then Ryan Cox should have significantly more followers than he does. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> but yeah, that, I love that tactic. That's awesome. And I'm actually doing that on a project right now. And it's, it's working pretty well. So two, two key areas that are not in the dark realm. They're more in like the, in the white, air, white hat area. Our SEO, I guess, well, you know, you could do it in a dark way, but just in general, let's talk about SEO a little bit. And then the other thing I want to hear about is if you guys have any had any success or have any tactics for getting press to write about you or major blogs to write about your projects. So let's let's talk SEO first. What are some of the things you do for SEO? I think from an from an SEO perspective, um, you know, it's definitely diversified over the past few years. The the algorithms have gotten increasingly complex uh, in terms of what they're looking for, in terms of, uh, you know, they raise the standard in terms of the quality, uh, which I think ultimately is a great thing, uh, but often makes 
you know, often makes SEO more difficult than, than it used to be. Um, and again, probably much better for the long-term health of the internet. But, you know, as it should be, it's a lot about creating quality content, creating lots of quality content, um, and then getting people to link to that content. So, you know, building natural links through as many ways as you can. But I still think the best natural-esque link-building method is guest blog posts, uh, especially for a new site, especially for a site that's still trying to get traction that doesn't have a lot of market awareness. You create content and then do a lot of guest blog posts. Um, it was, is my preferred, I guess, recommended SEO tactic for, for a new site. You know, I've definitely done a lot of things from buying links to paying Indians to build links for me, um, to all, all sorts of, you know, semi-gray uh, SEO tactics in the past, uh, often a great success. But, you know, if I could recommend one thing today, just, you know, build engaging content, build a great product, build something worth talking about, you know, do the social things we've already discussed to get those signals going. Make sure you do the uh, the Google author uh, rel links. Google that if you're not familiar with that. It's the Google author rel links. And then, you know, do a lot of guest blog posts, as, much, as many as possible. Okay. Do you have any <laughs> SEO okay. stuff to talk about, Brandon? Um, you know, a lot what James says, you know, most of the time when I'm building, you know, whether it be, you know, uh, uh, the job board stuff or all of that, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to play the Google bot as much as humanly possible. So I'm, I'm always trying to attack it from a technical side. So I've got a database of every major city, um, and every state. And a lot of times, like a lot of the things I build are, are local based. And so, you know, I'll generate huge, uh, you know, site maps of every possible, cause and a lot of the stuff that I do is dynamically pulled from various spots on the web and I'll have, you know, answers for every single location. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I do is kind of just let, waiting for the Google bot to come and start traversing everything in my site maps and all of that. So mm. uh, I do that a lot. Like I, I go to that, um, you know, to that location. I've, I basically just created a location XML document that I then transform into my site map that, you know, for, for my UX jobs is, is it automatically has every possible, you know, major market in it. So I know Boston UX jobs, you search that I'm going to be number one. Um, so, you know, a lot of those things I just kind of build into the thing. I don't do a lot of blog posts just because I'm not that kind of person. I don't like to write. I hate writing. Um, but I do know the value of it as well. I just don't like doing it. Well, what about like writing for your own blog? Is that even worth the time to write posts on your own blog? Is I, I really do. I think I think it's you have to have content out there. You have to have relevant content out there. Um, but, you know, for me personally, it's kind of like, blah, I just hate doing it. Right. Okay. How about, uh, are there any tools you guys use to monitor your rankings or like the Google webmaster tools? Are you checking that often? What types of things are you looking at to see how your SEO is working? I, I think primarily today I probably use the Google webmaster tools. It's been increasingly difficult over the past few years to gain an accurate ranking with the way Google now works with Google search, with uh, their social integration, things like that. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember the, the last ranking tool I used. Uh, it's pretty common. You can Google it, um, and I'm sure you'll find something something similar. Um, but, you know, I've sort of given up on terms of finding those services worth paying for. It's so much more a long-tail game for the majority of these smaller traction 
high-end projects. Uh, you know, I don't find it really super relevant until you get the high traffic terms, which normally happen post-launch as you get older, as you have some history. Um, SEO is not is not a tactic that I find terribly important, to be honest, for most of my sort of early traction S projects. I know I know Brandon's got a slightly different experience and has a slightly different focus on many of his projects uh, that are highly optimized for search, uh, but most of my stuff has not been has not been focused on SEO as the primary marketing tactic. Okay. All right, let's talk about the press and how you. what are some tactics you can use to try to get write-ups. Have you guys been successful in getting large blogs or magazines or newspapers or the, or the like to write about your stuff? Or is that uh, not an I area you focus on? I haven't. On? It, it's not. You know, I personally find either you have have a really compelling story. You have to, you know, hustle hard to get the PR. You have to you know, use relationships, and those are not uh, relationships that I personally have or have worked on in the past. Um, you know, I, I've definitely worked at companies where I use PR firms to you know, great success. Um, but in terms of my personal sort of one-off kind of projects, when working them as as an individual, I haven't had a lot of success with that. What have you tried? Have you tried uh, having somebody write up a press release for you, or hired people that do have some of those? Connections. I mean, I, th- I think press releases are, are largely meaningless in terms of the kind of thing we're discussing tonight. Um, I personally haven't put in a great deal of effort to hire people. It's, it's not it's not an angle I've pursued. Um, so it's not to say that it can't work or won't work or hasn't worked for many other people, but it's, it's not something I've tried personally. I, you know, so um, I, what I would say with the, the, I do think that like PR Web, which you know for eighty bucks you can go have it press release and end up on Google News and whatever eighty nine bucks. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's, it, it that one is the one thing that I will do where I'll release press releases and target specific markets that I've seen actually does give me some initial traffic. Again, it's not much. We're talking maybe thirty, forty uniques uh, a day coming. Oh, a from day. Those okay. Um, but it's not a bad number, right? And and it at least is getting out there. And and I have seen people, uh, especially with the company I'm at now, where we we've, we've done releases and we specifically targeted the education market. And then when the salespeople go, they said, "Oh, well, we did see your release." So and and I do, but I I I, I think it really does depend on kind of the market that you're going after. Um, you know that. And so for me, I've I've had I've never gone after press specifically. Now I've been fortunate enough, especially back you know back back in the day, um, to to have stuff just automatically happen. Where, but that doesn't happen anymore, right? So like uh, my my PDF uh, book printing service that ended up on Command N. Is that even still around anymore? I don't, I'm a, not even familiar with what that it, is. Uh, it was a web. Um, it was like a video podcast, but this is you know back in the and they stayed around for a long time. I think they might have gotten bought by somebody. I don't know, um, but that and I had no idea, right? So most of the time that I find out that I had any kind of press, I had no idea about it, and it was looking at my logs, going, "Oh, hey, look, I actually got a write up, you know, here." And um, but no, I've never been good at like going after and begging for articles. But now it can't happen. And I've talked to a lot of people that it's just like you know you do you just need to constantly be in contact and build up those relationships. For me, it's kind of like, bah, I'd rather bang on my keyboard than have to interact with people. One of the tactics I've heard from uh, another business owner that he said actually worked well for him. And this goes back eight years. So probably there's an updated way of doing it now. But what he did is he, he and his co-founder went to Barnes and Noble and they looked at all the magazines that related to their industry 
and they went through specifically looking for the byline in each of the articles. And in there, the author would always put their email address at the magazine. So they just started writing all this stuff down. They put it in a database and they got to the point where they had hundreds of these people's email addresses. So I imagine they were going to blogs as well and just anywhere where they knew people would write about this stuff and could possibly write about them, they would just compile this list. And then anytime they did a press release, they made sure they sent it to that list. And he Mm -hmm. said that the first time they send the press release out, nothing. Like, nobody wrote about it. There was nothing. The second time, the third time, still nothing. But by the fourth time, they had seen it enough times that they were starting to remember it. And, oh, when when they need to write this next article. Because all these guys are really, at the end of the day, their job is to have to fill those pages or fill those blog pages with content. And so... They're going to sooner or later not have something and a deadline's approaching. And if they keep seeing these press, press releases from you, you're in the front of their mind, they might write about you. Yep. And then he took it one step further, which I thought was really cool. He said, don't just write a standard press release. Write a press release as though it could be the article so that when so these guys see it, yeah, they don't even have to do much work. They can just use it as the article. Love it. So that, that was his tactic. He said it worked really well, and they continue to use that tactic today. And now they actually have relationships with some of these people, and they, could, they can basically reach out to the ones they know have written about them in the past a few times and let them know when something new is coming, and they know they'll get a write-up again. So, Good. I like that. Yeah. All right. Are, we, are there any other tactics you guys would like to share that you've thought of? Uh, for, I, think, I still think web forums have uh, value right now. I don't know how much longer they'll last. But you find a web forum that fits your niche. You can't just go in there and start spamming it because you're going to get, you know, clobbered. But, um, you know, start building relationships. It really does. It comes down to building relationships with people, whether it's real or not. Um, but it's it's not just the first time you talk to them, uh, you, you don't just ask them for their money. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got you've got to kind of build up that relation, like that, like that individual who I said just just uh, sent me an instant message uh, before the podcast. Right. right? We know he's not like just wanting to be friends. We know there's a question that's behind it, but he won't admit what it is. But he's doing he's trying to build that relationship, and I appreciate that. So, how do you build that in a forum, though? You you start acting, you interact, you answer questions, you do things that relate to whatever market that you're in. Uh, I, that's the way I would do it is is just constantly go and find questions that you can answer or contribute to so that at least you start building up some karma within that form. Well, and that sounds really time intensive, though. It is. And, and that's the thing is, is once you know that you've got the market, then it's worth it. I mean, you know, you can spend a shitload of money on, sorry, a, a shitload of money on, um, uh, you know, marketing, traditional uh, advertising, all of that stuff. Or you can start trying to build a groundswell and, and, and really go after and build up that, you know, your identity within that community. So do you like sprinkle in little comments of like, oh, I'm working on like as you're telling somebody how to solve this problem, by the way, I'm working on something that may alleviate this problem in the future. Totally, totally. I mean, so any opportunity you have to talk about it, you know, put it in your footer, you know, or in your signature, you know, put it in whatever and just just be all over the place again, out of sight, out of mind. So you want to be in their face as much as humanly possible, even where it makes you uncomfortable as a developer, you're like don't want to do that you know but sometimes you just just constantly you know tweet three times in the same day about the same thing you know and you're like oh but people are gonna think i'm spamming well realistically they're probably not gonna see it right. so you know you gotta you gotta hoard up a bit <laughs> excellent all right is that it then you want to move on so, to links sure let's talk about links. 
Yeah, I'm going to have to cut out, guys. I apologize, but uh, that's going to be it for me for the night. All right. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, James, and uh, a lot of great tactics that we covered. So, No problem. Greatly enjoyed it. Let's talk more, guys. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Night. Thanks. All right, Brandon, let's run through these links. we got five links that were posted on Talonopoly over the last two weeks. Uh, the first one here is Understanding Backbone JS. It's a step-by-step guide. takes you from jQuery to Backbone. And it's an interesting way of showing this because what the guy has done is he started out with jQuery code. If jQuery is what you're familiar with, this could be a great way for you to get introduced to Backbone because then he slowly rewrites it with explanations of each of the steps. He slowly rewrites it into Backbone JS code so that it's not just this, here's Backbone with no context around it. It's, well, you know jQuery. Let's walk you through the steps of how it's very similar to Backbone. Oh, look at this. Now you're at Backbone code. You know, but are the two mutually exclusive? You know what I mean? Is right. It, does 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 underscore or back? Because underscore is obviously a dependency of backbone. Does it require, uh, or does it have any? Does it have any kind of selector engine? I don't know. See, that's, that's a, a good question. Like, I I, I built in it, and I still I'm like I don't have any way of other than you know get element you know by ID or or the traditional stuff. So I didn't have you know I didn't I couldn't at least within the the short period that I was researching it because again I like brute forcing and I couldn't really find anything so I still had to do combination of jQuery and now again I could probably do sizzle but jQuery and uh, backbone right I don't I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that I bet a lot of people do that the the other thing too that we were talking about a little before the podcast when we mentioned this was the the fact that they use diffs in here made it you know if you're not used to looking at diffs which is you know, that's the delta of what's changed from the one state of the file to the next, then it might be a little hard for you to read like each of these steps and see actually the code that he's changing and for it to make it, it made it a little harder to, to read and follow for me. How about you, Brandon? It did for me. I, I it drove me crazy. I was just like, <laughs> no, I, let, let me see the side by side. And, and I think we came up with a new product uh, because of that. But um, yeah, so I, I wasn't crazy about the formatting of it, but I think any any tool that can hopefully get people to start because I do think if you can really follow the the backbone idea that you could really build some amazing stuff because it does have a lot of things what I found what was happening to me is I was like I'm building my models with backbone um, but then I had this one thing that I really couldn't figure out how I would handle it using the the confine or not the confines but the rules of backbone so I end up kind of cheating you know and and so I have some spaghetti code but some not um, mm-hmm. but you know, but again, anything that's going to hopefully promote this idea, because I really do think it's a phenomenal, uh, it's, it's a, just an absolutely killer framework. All right. Our next link is cooler. Is that how you say this? Yeah. K U L E R create a color scheme from an image. Tell us about it, Brandon. So cooler for all of you guys who like don't really know anything about color theory. Uh, this is where you go to figure out. So like, you know, I want to have an orange. Okay. So what you can do in cooler is you put in your base orange and then you say, give me the triad, which is basically the three complementary colors that associate to this orange. And it can, you can get it in all the RGB fashions. You can get it in the hex values. You can get it in all the formats that you need. Um, and it can show you all the different variations. And then people go and they build out color themes that you can select and they give you all of this. So it's just a really cool way to kind of go in and say, here's where I'm thinking and then it really kind of not scientifically but you know based on color theory you can have complement uh, complementary colors you can have the all the different names that I forget from color theory class hmm. uh, 
so it's a, it's an absolutely great service just to go in and quickly be able to find colors that you know will naturally resonate within the human eye so you're not sitting there picking like an orange and this totally off purple because you're colorblind you just don't realize it um, so yeah highly recommend it if you if you want to have good colors but don't know anything about color theory yeah which really goes back to a lot of what we talked about in the last episode and yep. if you do, if you find an image that you like on Dribble, you can just take that, run it through Cooler, and you could get a color scheme right from that. Yeah. So it's, it, I, I forgot that they even offered that, honestly. Yeah. It's a great feature. Yeah. So go find your, go, you know, I want to have a serene experience. And so you go to Google Images and you search, you know, lake bed and whatever, dead fish. And then it does. It, it really pulls out like the, and it just is like, wow, that's a cool color combination. And then start, and you can add, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's also dangerous at the same time because a lot of times, you know, people go hog wild. They give you six colors. And so a lot of times designers or developers will go and take all six colors and sort of like just make, take three. You yeah. Know, you, you have a primary color and then you could have like a base and then you have kind of an accent color. So don't go over wild. Just, you know, pick three good solid colors that work well together. And we do have a post up on the Talonopoly blog that talks all about how to choose colors for your projects, for your web projects or app projects, and uh, it's, it's a fantastic post. It's a guest post that we had one of the members write, Sarah McAleer. And if I'm mispronouncing that, I apologize, but it's a really great post. So if you are interested in finding out more about how to choose a color, go check that out on the blog. All right, link number three is Ninja Power. Open source HTML5 tool set aims to enable richer web apps. Kind of a mouthful, but what it is is a really cool... Uh, framework for building these incredibly rich web apps. And when I say web app, I mean like basically like you, they have a 3D modeling program that looks like Lightwave or 3D Studio Max or, you know, the RenderMan type of thing where you can literally make these like 3D models and keyframe animation. It is a full 3D program in your browser. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, this is the one link that I didn't go check out. And now you've got me like, <laughs> it's, it's based on that uses montage is what they say here. So montage is what provides all of this rich ability for them to build Ninja and Ninja is this 3d authoring tool that yeah, you would see this more like uh, you would use it for kind of games. You think than than like a web app though, what, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I would think, Maybe I mean games, but also if you just want to build this, I think I think this is where things are starting to go. Where you probably don't need to install 3D Studio Max ten years from now. 3D Studio Max is going to or could be developed in something like this, where it's yeah. just delivered through the browser in an interpreted way. Maybe they end up using native code through something like Google Chrome's native code extensions, but. There's no necess- There's not that need to install all this pre-compiled code via your traditional installer methods on an OS when you have the ability to do it using something like Montage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more proof of concept at the moment. But as things like the JavaScript engines in these web browsers get even quicker with every release, you get to the point where you could build this stuff in this. And, mm-hmm. and this is proof of it. This is just I- incredible what they're making. We've talked about it before, but my daughter, who's 14, you know, I, I she knows Photoshop, um, but she still will get on, you know, whether it's Avery or whatever. I can't remember the names of all the different Photoshop web based right. tools where, uh, you know, she, you know, those those fit the bill pretty close. So oh, yeah. you're going to 
all these kids that are growing up on web apps and you know they're gonna be like you want us to download this <laughs> right and now you have the chrome app marketplace and you know i think this is just the tip of the iceberg so i was excited to see what they were able to do with this just totally impressed link number four i won't hire people who use poor grammar here's why uh this is from one of the co-founders of iFixit. have you checked out iFixit before Brandon? oh yeah yeah Definitely. great website really smart guys that run that and what he's saying in here is that if you do not if you think an apostrophe was one of the 12 disciples of jesus then you will never work for me that's a, <laughs> that's a quote from there amazing but uh he actually will give you a grammar test when you apply for the job if you make it to the interview stage you do have to undergo a grammar test and if you don't know the difference between to and too then you're not going to get the job because his thinking is, is that if you don't pay attention to the, like if 20 years wasn't enough time for you to learn those, those aspects of your language, your primary language. And he says he does this for people who speak English primarily. He's not doing grammar tests for if you don't, I, you know, I don't know how many other types of employees he has, but if, if English is your primary language and you haven't in 20 years or 30 years figured out the difference between TO and TOO, then he's like that. That's a learning curve that he's not willing to to take on for other stuff. He like he that's not going to give him confidence that you can learn these other things very easily. I, I, yeah. So I, I in some ways I agree with him. In some ways I completely disagree with the guy. Um, that yes, I think it, it does prove like where they pay attention to stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is I know some people who who are virtually illiterate. Um, but can produce some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Right. But, and I think this is more on the development side because he does talk about code in here a lot too and how language is a lot like writing code. Yeah, yeah. but even even there, what I know that now that's true because like a lot of the yeah, I would I would agree if it's, if we're talking about developers, if we're not talking about kind of across the board, um, then then I'm fine with that. I think he is, yeah, because later on in the article, he does mention programmers several times and give examples of why he thinks that sloppy grammar, pro- you know, people who have sloppy grammar in their resumes also have sloppy code. I would know this if I read the article. That's all right. That's what you got me for. All right, our last link is Axitopia, a huge collection of UE widgets for mocking up anything. This I did not know about this program. I had to actually go look at Wikipedia to find out more about this, but Axzure, if that's probably killing the pronunciation there, but it's a program for UX designers, UE designers, people that do specifications, and you can do mockups in it that actually will end up creating Word doc specifications as well. Really cool stuff. Very expensive program, though. How, uh, how much? It was near five hundred dollars. Oh. It was hundreds of dollars for it. I thought you said fifty when we first no, started. No, no, no. It was I, hundreds I, for this. Way too much. Ridiculous, dude. Sell for fifty bucks, and you'll just your your sales will go through the roof. Oh yeah, Balsamic could really have a true competitor then. So you know what the cool thing though is that this file I think it's their file format, uh, and that's why all these UE widgets are specific to the program. They just have an enormous amount of UE widgets. It's almost like brushes for Photoshop are, where you can just browse the web and just find pretty much any brush that you want. The same goes for these UE widgets. No matter what you're mocking up, whether it's the some weird version of Symbian OS or you know the you know or it could be Android or iOS or web app or whatever it is, they have UE widgets for you. It's just incredible. 
So if if you are really into mocking stuff up or that's part of your day job, and you probably already know about this, but if you don't, check it out. It looks really neat. Love it. And with that, we will No, wrap. wait, 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 before uh, you end it. What? Before you end it. Everybody listening, again, this is a reminder. If if you would rather have uh, a, 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 <laughs> a non-filtered uh, podcast, I want you to speak out. I want you to say it. I want you to post it. And I want you to tell Jared, you email him, do whatever, uh, so we can fight uh, our four friends on Reddit who says that <laughs> they would rather not hear me uh, drop the uh, S-bomb and the fuck bomb. Um, <laughs> the fuck bomb. I don't think anybody calls it the fuck bomb, Brandon. <laughs> Art Blue, hopefully they're asleep by now. <laughs> All right. Yeah, seriously, if, if that is if if you like that aspect about it, then yeah, like Brandon said, speak up. We would love to hear that because right now we're, the only feedback we're getting is that we we got to kick oh, Brandon off the podcast permanently. Brandon doesn't like swearing. I'm doing the Jackie Chan theme right now. Like <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, on the fuck bomb note, we'll end it. <laughs> you completely failed, Brandon. By the way, of cleaning your language up whatsoever during this episode. No, no, no. somebody do an analysis or analysis on the number, and it has been significantly less, probably. So, uh, if if you like what you heard, uh, and I hope you do, then go on to iTunes or anywhere else where you can find this podcast and leave us a review, or at least upvote it and make it so other people can find this amazing podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next episode.